This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right. Well, I just thought I'd start out by telling you a little bit about myself. How many of you have listened to my testimony, maybe on Audioverse? Some of you know that I come from a, a background of being sexually abused myself. Now, several years ago when I came and shared that at GYC, you know, that was honestly, that was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. I don't know how it sounds when you listen to it on the recording, but for me, it was very terrifying. I felt honestly just like every night for months before I shared that message, I would lie there in bed and just think, Lord, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't get up and talk in front of all these people about what happened to me as a child. It still had so much shame in it for me. So, so many things that I just felt like I can't stand up there. But I felt the Lord continually telling me, Nicole, you've got to do what you wish somebody had done for you. If only somebody had shared with you those keys to healing, you wouldn't have had to take such a long, agonizing route to finding freedom. So when I'd pray, Lord, I can't do this, he would bring back the promises of Scripture. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lord, I can't do this. God has not given us the spirit of fear. And I clung to those promises over and over. I would have to just say them to myself and say, You can do this because God has not given you a spirit of fear. And he has called you to get out there and share with other people. But you know, just being able to share my story and hearing the response from other people was so healing to me. And I realized over time, wow, I really don't have anything to be ashamed of. This is the power of the Christian community that it helps you when you realize, wow, all of us are actually in this together. We all struggle with sin and we've all been sinned against and we're all in this battle to learn how to apply the gospel to our lives. Now, I don't know what background those of you who are here listening come from and some of you might feel the same way that I felt. I could never tell anybody what I went through. I want to encourage you not to believe that. Don't believe the devil's lies that you have to keep something inside of you. You know, when you're sexually abused, there's this powerful temptation to think of sex and of yourself as ashamed, as dirty, as permanently stained. And that's how I felt. But I realized that was a lie of the devil. There's nothing that can stain you except sin. Your own sin. Not someone else's sin against you, but your own sin. Someone else's sin against you can never stain you. Why? Because... The Bible says nothing that comes into a person can defile them, only the things that come out of the person. And then it gives a long list of sins, right? Lust and deceit and lies and all of those things. And then it says these are the things that defile a person, right? Jesus said these words. We need to apply them to our lives. This is how scripture sets us free. Nothing can defile you that someone does to you, not being raped, not being sexually abused. Those things cannot defile a person. The only thing that can defile you is your own sin. And the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from that. So I want you to find hope and courage in understanding that principle and that promise. Now for me, it was a process, not an event. And I think for every one of you, you'll find the same thing. It's a process finding healing from sexual abuse or from any kind of abuse. What I'm talking about today is specifically sexual abuse. But these principles apply to healing from any kind of abuse. There are so many kinds, emotional abuse, violence that people suffer. Just realize, God has a plan to set you free. Now, 
for those of you who don't know, as a, as a young teenager, I was sexually abused when I was very young. My grandfather died when I was about 10, so he had molested me and raped me through the years. I don't even know how old I was when uh, it finally ended. But all of those things just started um, reacting in me as I hit my teen years. Not only did I just freak out if my boyfriend would so much as hold my hand, I would just feel like this emotional wanting to vomit, you know. But I also just craved male attention. I wanted people to pay attention to me. I flirted. I, I needed somebody to affirm that I was worth something. In many ways, I think I was emotionally, developmentally arrested at a very young age, and so I had a lot of things to get over. I was also severely depressed, and I would just cry and cry for no reason, just wish I could die and think about suicide and I struggled with severe anxiety issues. If I had gone to a psychiatrist, I would have had a whole string of diagnoses and medications. But I didn't. Nobody knew anything that was going on because I very carefully kept everything hidden and kept it all inside. Hmm, my computer just did exciting things again. <laughs> Hang on here. So. I, I embraced a way of living that was a double life. I was living a lie in many ways, trying to believe that I was perfectly fine and yet continually feeling this, oh man, if everybody knew the stuff that you think, they would, they would just say, she's crazy. There's something really wrong with her. I would sleep at night wearing jeans every night or jean shorts if it was summertime and too hot because I was so scared that somebody's going to climb through the window and rape me. And yet I couldn't even remember what had happened to me. The, the anxiety issues, thank you, honey, you're so wonderful. The anxiety issues started coming up. <laughs> Don't distract me. <laughs> Sorry, where were we? <clears throat> Did I ever mention that I was certain I could never get married because no quality guy would ever want me? The devil will tell you lots of lies, but remember, those are lies. The Lord has given me the most wonderful husband in the whole world, the best man I could ever imagine, and I'm so grateful. So don't believe the devil's lies. He will tell you so many lies. He will tell you no one will ever want you. He will tell you you're never going to get over this. It's never going to go away. This is going to be the rest of your life. It's going to be how you feel. He's lying. That's not true. But it may be something that characterizes a, a battle of your life for some time. Depression, anxiety, fear, anger. I had so many emotions surging around inside me. But I kept it all down inside, kept a happy face on, kind of enjoyed goofing off all the time, being the person who, who tried to just be friends all the time. I wanted to have lots of friends, fill my life with social life, and somehow I thought that painkiller would fix everything. But of course it didn't. And you can imagine having this this whole mentality, you know, I felt like sex was just this horrible, dirty, nasty thing. I couldn't understand why God would even make something so nasty. Why would God do something like that? And at the time, I felt so alone. I didn't tell people what I'd gone through. I talked to a couple of my close friends, but I didn't really realize the magnitude of the situation. Today, I do. You know, statistics and research will tell you that one in three girls and one in five boys are sexually abused by an adult at some time during their childhood. I think the numbers are actually much higher than that, but that's my personal opinion. I find it more like one out of every two girls and probably one out of every three or four guys. 
Um, but the thing is, especially for guys, they don't call it abuse. If you ask a guy, have you ever been sexually abused? No, no, never. Has anybody ever touched you in a way you didn't want them to touch you and you couldn't make them stop? Well, yeah. But they don't think of it as abuse. Guys don't want to be victims. And so it's very hard, especially for guys, to process having been sexually abused. But for girls, we process it in different ways. Sometimes we become obsessed with, you know, skimpy clothes and getting people to desire us. Other times we become obsessed with the opposite, stay as far away from men as possible. All of those responses are wrong because God wants us to find our refuge in him, not in ourselves. And God wants us to embrace healing through him, not try to fix everything ourselves. You know, it's, it's funny how people so often don't consider themselves to have been abused, and yet they've been through abusive situations that would shock someone else who's never been there. If they say, oh yeah, my dad used to knock me around, and yeah, he used to touch me and make suggestive remarks to me, or yeah, my uncle was always reaching between my legs, but you know, things that a normal person would say, what, that guy should be in prison. A person who's been abused, their view of normal is warped. And I know um, Steve mentioned this and dealt with it, but for some people, particularly those who haven't been sexually abused, it's very difficult to explain how being sexually abused warps the way that you think. I don't really fully know how to explain it, except that things that everyone else would say, well, that's just normal, are totally new thoughts to a person who's been sexually abused. If you can imagine that you were raped by a person who is the mayor of your town and also happens to be the police chief of your town and also happens to own your house and if you you know report this guy and you get taken to the judge the judge is also going to be this guy that's something of what it's like for a child to be sexually abused you put into that the fact that they've got the coping skills of a say six-year-old that's why children can't do anything and they don't say anything and they just try to pretend like it's not there because they have no way to deal with the magnitude of this kind of violation of justice. And not surprisingly, when they grow up, often they have no way to connect with God because God seems a whole lot like their daddy who loved them so much and was so much fun and had tickle fights with them, but at night he'd come into their room and molest them. How do you make sense of that kind of world? This is why sexual abuse victims sometimes cannot remember, literally cannot remember what happened to them. That's what happened to me for a period of time. It's kind of like, how many of you have ever used a pressure cooker? You know how a pressure cooker has this emergency valve that if something happens and the pressure is building up inside there, it'll just blow the pressure valve. That emergency valve is gone and the steam goes pouring out. That's the best way I can think of to explain what happens when a person cannot remember what happened to them because the pressure is just so much that they would go crazy if they had to pr process all of it. So as a child or even as an adult, sometimes the person just can't remember. Sometimes rape victims that I've spoken to cannot remember what happened at first. You know, you'd think, well, this is something that happened to you three days ago. You can't remember what happened? No. They don't know where they were. They can't remember exactly the details of what happened. They, all they remember is before and after, and they know what happened. Um, but over time, those memories do come back. Often when a person is equipped with better coping skills, maybe they get into a safe environment. Kids who go away to boarding school, for example, which was what happened for me. When I went away to boarding school, I learned how to have a deeper connection with God. I began spiritually maturing, and I felt like I was in a safe environment. And those things eventually put me into a safe enough place 
that I was able to remember the things that had happened to me as a child. Even though I knew that he had abused my sister, I still wasn't able to process the fact that he had abused me too until all those things came back. And then the memories came back over a long period of time. Now, some people have a lot of questions about what they call false memory, when somebody remembers something but it didn't actually happen. In my experience, that is more likely to happen if you've got a psychiatrist sitting down with you saying, so tell me, can you remember any person who might have made you feel bad? Maybe you have an uncle or a cousin, or can you think of anybody who you didn't like when you were a kid? And then they probe and they make up memories you know, maybe you don't like that uncle because he tickled you until you couldn't breathe one time, but there was nothing evil going on there. But then, you know, when that happened when you were five and at 25, all you remember is this vague bad feeling about him. You can warp into something that wasn't actually a reality. So when people ask me, because I do get asked, you know, I have all these problems with, you know, having boyfriends or emotional issues and yet I can't remember being sexually abused, was I or not? I would just say, don't try so hard to remember something that you just stress yourself out. Stay connected with God, stay close to God, get into a healthy environment, build healthy friendships, and if there's something you need to remember, in God's time and God's way, he'll help you to remember it. But don't stress about it. If you need to deal with something, God will make you capable of that at the right time. Um, Many people have been abused who would not consider themselves to have been victims of abuse. And I want to be careful about even using the word abuse because in our culture, so often people like to blame. You know, I have all these problems, but it's because my mom was always depressed. Well, great. But when you're 30 or 20 or whatever, at some point you've got to take control of your life. And the fact that somebody else sinned against you has wounded you, but you have to take control and choose to let God be the foundation of your security. So I don't want to minimize what people go through because sometimes emotional abuse may do just as much trauma as sexual abuse for a person. And, you know, different kinds of abuse are often interwoven together. If there's some way that someone has sinned against you, maybe one of your parents or both of your parents, the reality is everybody's parents sin against them, but some profoundly, and it can really warp your view of God. We're going to talk about that later. The main thing to realize is if there's something that happened in your life that wounded you, Give it to God. Go through a process of handing over those emotions and those memories to God so that he can give you forgiveness and healing instead of having something that's festering. You know, a lot of people think if you've got a problem, you've got to go to a counselor, right? Go find a psychiatrist because the Bible doesn't talk about these things. But I would say the opposite. I think the Bible is all about these things because the reality is abuse is sin, right? Does the Bible talk about sin? Yes, the Bible is all about sin and redemption. Abuse is what happens when someone else sins against you. And the big problem with abuse is that when someone sins against you, it prompts a huge temptation for you to sin in response. This is the cycle of evil, death unto death. When someone sins against you, you're going to be tempted to sin back. When your parent hits you unjustly, you're tempted to resent and be bitter and angry and plot you know, how to get revenge or something like that, you know, or maybe to do the opposite, to live in hurt and say, I just can't deal with that. I'm not going to, I'm I'm just going to forgive and forget without actually forgiving. And then that, that problem festers because that's a sin of denial, not allowing God into the deep places in your life and giving you healing. God wants to give us freedom. The Bible is all about the gospel and how it sets us free 
from the effects of sin, both other people's sins against us and our own sins in response. My problems that I had, all these different issues, could be traced to two things. My grandfather's sins against me and my sins in response, right? My anxiety issues, that was me trying to be God. You see, we always, we always have these two natural sins we want to commit. We want to be God or we want to make somebody else into God. I wanted to be God. I wanted to be so in control of my life that no man could ever hurt me again. But I can't do that, can I? And so then when I would realize, you cannot, you know, you can't make sure that there's never a, a bad guy hiding in the parking lot ready to jump you. You can't protect yourself from being hurt. You can't decide, I will never allow anyone to damage me emotionally again, because you're not God. So I wanted to be God, and then when that wouldn't work, I would try to make someone else into God. Find a boyfriend. If I could just find somebody who's really cute and who's really popular and who everybody else looks up to, I'll automatically go up in social rank right away. And that will surely fix my problems, won't it? I'll feel great. I'll look in the mirror and say, wow, I really am beautiful. I'll get the right clothes. I, I had all these great ideas of how I could fix things put something else into the place of God so that then I would finally feel worthwhile and feel loved. But nothing worked. As you can imagine, it never does. God has to make our idols crumble in order to bring us back to himself. So, in an abuse situation, when a young person or an older person has suffered abuse, everything that it continues, you know, when a person cuts you. For example, if I took a knife and I slashed you on your arm, well, that's my sin against you, right? But you're the one who suffers, right? I may walk away and I feel fine. doesn't bother me at all. But you're the one who's got to heal from that wound. Well, the problem is when you get an infection in there, you may still be hurting 20 years from now, right? This is what happens when we sin in response. Our sins in response cause an infection. And God wants us to find freedom. There are all kinds of abuse. You know, there's spiritual abuse. I remember a girl whose father told her that she was going to be lost because she was overweight. And she ate chocolate. Well, for sure she was on the way to hell, according to him. Spiritual abuse. He was trying to be her conscience, telling her that she must do whatever he's convicted for her to do. Um, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse. There are all kinds of ways that a person can be hurt by someone else's sin. But the reality is all parents make mistakes. There's never been a perfect parent since the beginning of time. And this is what's wrong. You know, God has designed us to live in perfect community, but we live in faulty community instead because we're surrounded by sinners and we're sinners ourselves. God designed that perfect parents would give birth to perfect children and as those perfect children are growing up, even before the child is old enough to read a Bible or to know that there is a creator, they will learn about love because these perfect parents will show them what love is really like. This is why God doesn't make us hatch out of eggs in the woods, right? He wants us to live in relational community. But relationships heal and relationships wound. So since no parent is perfect, every child is somewhat wounded. God wants that perfect parent to reflect his perfect love to that perfect child but that doesn't happen every parent warps that image of God to their child that's why we need the Bible and we need the church the community of other fellow believers who can give a more full well-rounded picture of what God's love is like this is God's plan for us and we must learn at some point in our maturing process that yeah our parents were human 
They made mistakes, but God does not make mistakes. This is when we transition from just seeing our parents as God to seeing God as revealed in his word and knowing he is good, he is love. Yes, my parents make mistakes. They haven't portrayed God perfectly to me, but they've helped me along in my process of understanding who God is. When a person comes to me saying, I just can't feel close to God, I ask them two things. Number one, what are you doing in your devotional time? And number two, what's your relationship with your parents like? Because I know usually what happens is their parents have not portrayed God's love to them accurately. I remember a girl who came to me just saying, I just can't connect with God. And it so happened as we were talking, my daughter was having a little issue, meltdown. So I called her over to me and I hugged her and I said, you know, Anaya, the way that you're acting right now is not acceptable. You need to go to your room and have some time with God and pray and let him change your attitude, okay? So I hugged her, I sent her to her room, and I turned around and the girl who had come to me for counseling was crying. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess we're, uh, you know, getting to the root of something. <laughs> and she realized at that moment, she was like, wow, that's so not the way it would have been done in my family. And I go, ah, how would it have been done in your family? Because you see, this was what it was at the root of her misconception of the character of God. She felt that if she messed up at all, God was up there going, you better get it right now. You're always doing this. I hate it when you do this. You're so stupid. You see, God had been misrepresented to her, and because of that, she couldn't connect deeply with him. Does God heal people's hearts? The Bible says he heals the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Psalm 147, verse 5. God is all about healing our hearts. While Jesus did do a lot of healing people's bodies, he was doing that in order to heal their hearts, in order to get them to believe that he had the power to change their hearts. Remember when they brought the guy to him who was on the stretcher, and Jesus says, hey, I've forgiven your sins. And the guy is just amazed. Wow, see, God had healed his heart. And then, everybody's like, whoa, you know, how do you know he's healed? And then Jesus says, okay, just so you can know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, rise up and walk. You see, God healed people's bodies in order to prove that he has the power to heal people's hearts. The gospel is all about healing our hearts. So the fact that you've been abused, even if you've been horribly abused, does not mean that you cannot connect with God deeply. It means you're going to have to work to believe who God is because you've got this powerful temptation that says, this is who I feel God is. And you're going to have to minimize that as you maximize this is who God says he is. And as you learn to believe that God is who he says he is instead of who you feel he is, you will connect with God. You'll find in him everything that you've longed for all of your life. You know, I, I found that for many people, even the things that they've gone through that were terrible, that were not God's will, become some of the greatest tools that God can use to lead them to connect with him deeply. I remember talking with a girl right after she had been raped and she, she was devastated. I mean, devastated. Here she goes, I, I've, I've been saving my first kiss for my husband. I've never even held hands with a man. And now this happens to me? How can I even move on? And I told her from my own experience, because, you know, she knew what I had been through. That's why she came and talked to me. I said, I know it doesn't seem like it's possible in any way right now. But God is going to heal your heart. And I believe that someday you may even look back at this and say, I'm thankful it happened to me. I know it doesn't seem possible now, but trust me on this. 
God uses these things to connect us more deeply with him because the person who's lived in a perfect family, a perfect background, may have a wonderful relationship with God, but they've never felt that aching, agonizing darkness and hopelessness that you felt. And then when you connect with God deeply, you understand, wow, he is light and in him is no darkness at all. And you appreciate so much what Jesus has done for you. And you know, that girl just was so blessed in you know, her process of healing. Just a few months later, she stood up before the student body at Southern and testified about how the Lord had healed her from this rape experience and how she could truly be grateful to God that it had happened to her, that it had made her a deeper and richer and better Christian and person, and that she was finding God's love and God's strength in ways she had never understood before. I just want to assure you, there is nothing that the devil can throw at you that God cannot use to become a blessing, even though things are not God's will. You know, this is one of the major things that messed me up, that I had this misconception of God, like, what kind of God are you? What kind of father would just sit there and watch while his little girl is going through that? I had so much anger toward God, but it was because of my unbelief. I couldn't believe that God was who he said in his word because circumstances didn't seem to jive with that. It just didn't make sense. And yet, I've understood now, no, it wasn't God's will. People try to say, well, it's just God's will your mother got hit by a drunk driver. No, it wasn't. It's not God's will that bad things happen. But God uses even bad things to accomplish his greater purpose. You see, God has this great overarching purpose that he wants to transform you into his image and he wants to reveal his love to the whole universe. Nobody can stop God from accomplishing his purpose in their lives. Not even Pharaoh. God said to Pharaoh, I am going to accomplish my purpose of revealing my character and my name to all the nations. So therefore, Pharaoh, let my people go. Did Pharaoh do God's will? No. Did God accomplish his purpose of revealing his character anyway? Yes. Even Hitler accomplished God's purpose. While he went directly against God's will, he accomplished God's purpose in showing to the universe what sin is like and what God is like. Because all the universe sees how God deals with Hitler, how God deals with Lucifer, how God deals with sin. And how God deals with you and me. Because we're sinners too, right? God works out his great purpose through everything. So no matter what choice you make, whether you go along with God or not, he will accomplish his purpose. He will love you because God is love and his first great goal is to reveal his love to the whole universe, to love you well. But if you cooperate with him, he can not just work his great purpose, but also work his purpose for you to transform you into his image. And anything that happens to you, even things that are against God's will, can be used to accomplish that great purpose. Isn't that what happened in Joseph's life? You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And God is using this thing to transform Joseph, even though it wasn't God's will that bad things happened to Joseph, God used those things to transform Joseph into a man of mighty faith and power. Nothing the devil can throw at you will be a stumbling block if you resolve in your heart to surrender, to trust God with it, to believe him, and to humble yourself before him. We'll talk about that more tomorrow. Remember that healing is a process, not just an event. You know, you weren't wounded in a day, and you won't be healed in a day. Just like physical healing, emotional healing works that way. It's a process. What hurts hearts? What is it that causes terrible pain in people's lives? The first thing is sins that are committed against us. That's what we're talking right now about. 
Uh-oh. Goes, off goes my computer again. The second thing that injures us is other people's sins against us. Other people, well, first, other people's sins against us. The second is our own sins. Our sins, whether it be in response to someone else's sin against us or just our own sin out of the blue. Who was the first abuser? Somewhere along the way that chain started. Somebody voluntarily chose to become an abuser when they weren't abused by anybody else, right? So sins that are committed against us cause us pain and hurt our hearts. Sins that we commit cause us pain and hurt our hearts. And third, they're just the results of living in a sinful world. You know, a tree branch falls in the road, the person who's coming down the road can't stop in time, they get in a car accident, roll off a cliff and die. Was that God's will? No. That's the result of living in a sinful world. People get cancer, terrible things happen. It's not God's will, but God can use those things still to accomplish his purpose. First, of revealing the way that he deals with problems to the whole universe, and second, by transforming us, using those circumstances into people who learn how to believe in his word no matter what circumstances life throws at us. All brokenness in this world results from sin. Sexual abuse can cause all kinds of sins of response. Sometimes it's sexual abhorrence. We can't believe that sex is a beautiful gift of God. It feels so horrible and nasty and wicked, right? Or sexual obsession. We can't think about anything else. I experienced both of those things. When I was about 10 years old, one of my friends and I started talking about sex all the time. She was also from an abusive background, and we just talked about sex constantly. We, we were, I mean, as a 10-year-old, I'm looking at men's crotches all the time and giggling with her about things. It sounds horrific, and, you know, you'd think a little 10-year-old supposed to be so innocent, so happy, so free. Well, I wasn't. But that sexual addiction, because that's really what it was, even at a very early age, wasn't a permanent thing. When I gave my life to the Lord, I did have to really work to learn new ways of thinking, not to be continually obsessed with sex, thinking about things. You know, she and I would fantasize for hours. We'd make up all these stories. We were going to be um, authors someday. We had a whole great plan. We were going to write novels together, put our two names together as one, and we'd write novels. And, you know, and so we would spend all this time talking about romantic fantasy stories, the Indians capture us and whatever, you know, ludicrous stuff. But we were, our addiction was very real and very much a problem. Today, my friend is still severely sexually addicted. She continually posts stuff on her Facebook that, you know, vile sexual images, women in bondage and blood and violence and posts stuff with strong sexual innuendos. And he, she has all these guys that follow her and write back in suggestive remarks. It's so painful to me, but I know I could have been there too. My friend and I haven't spent a whole lot of time together in the last 25 years, but I've taken a very different track in that time than she has. And both of, both of our lives bear testimony to what's been happening to us through those years. As I learned to give my life to God, she learned not to give her life to God. So sexual abhorrence, sexual obsession, both of those can come from sexual abuse, and often people are pendulums, swing back and forth between the two. That's normal. Depression or suicidal tendencies and anxiety or control issues. These are also two sides of a pendulum. Depression and anxiety are both results of sinful responses to life. Anxiety is when I try to be God, take care of everything, make my life into what it should be, and yet I can't fix it, right? People who 
are freaked out about going into elevators or driving over bridges or whatever. They want to be in control of their lives and they know that they can't. And those moments are what make them feel they're not in control. Depression happens when you realize you're not in control and you just want to give up. Both of them are results of unbelief, right? Not believing that God is who he says he is, that he loves me enough to take personal interest in my life. He knows my sitting down and my rising up, the number of hairs on my head. These are the things that a person who's struggling with anxiety needs to meditate on. God cares intimately about what's happening to you and you must believe that he loves you enough to care. That will deal with the anxiety issues. Depression often results from just feeling that nobody loves me anyway. I can't ever do anything right. Nothing will ever get me out of this deep, dark hole. I wish I were dead. This is also unbelief, right? This is seeing ourselves as we really are, but not seeing that the blood of Jesus is an infinite sacrifice paid for us. I'm not saying that all depression and anxiety are sinful. I don't want to make somebody feel terrible just because they struggle with depression. You know, it may be from a chemical imbalance. You may not be getting enough B12. You need to exercise. I don't know. There are a lot of complex issues. But the problem is depression or anxiety are temptations to look at life in an unbiblical way. To not believe that God is who he says he is. To not believe that he can lead my life when I don't feel like he is. Um, Codependent or idolatrous relationships. This is a big problem for many people. Um, And you can read lots of books out there in the world, but most of them are going to just give you the wrong answer because they don't deal with the fundamental idolatry that God wants to be on the throne of your heart. He is a jealous God. If God is not on the throne of your heart, something else will be and it will destroy you. Homosexuality. Many times sexual abuse can be traced down as the root of homosexuality. Um, I don't know how many of you you have seen the Booth for Coming Out Ministries over in the um, booth. Anybody seen that yet? I would encourage you to go check that out. You may not be struggling with homosexuality, but someone you know is. Probably lots of people you know are. In fact, some of those who are with Coming Out Ministries are here. Wayne, Mike, can you guys stand up for a second just so people can see who you are? Anybody else here from there? Okay, just Mike and Wayne. All right. Um, I just want to affirm my friends. You know, I am so proud of my friends who are willing to come out here and say, hey, God sets us free from homosexuality. It was so hard for me to get up and say I've been sexually abused, but in some ways homosexuality has an even worse stigma. People are like, oh, you were homosexual and keep my children away from you. You know what I mean? Yet these guys have the courage and Verna and Lisa and Ron, three others who are also working with them, to say God does set people free from homosexuality. They can testify. God sets people free from sexual addiction. Tomorrow we'll be talking about that. And God is never intimidated by our problems. He never sits back and goes, whoa, well, that one I can't deal with. God loves to set people free from sin. That's his whole goal in the plan of redemption. You know, I think one of the keys that really helps people to understand emotional healing is the process of physical healing. Sometimes when I'm dealing with a person, I I don't have very long to talk with them to help them get to the root of what's actually going on with their emotional healing process. I have to revert to, let's just use the illustration of physical healing and emotional healing because even if you don't have a counselor, you don't have anybody you can talk to, you can look at the lessons that God has put into physical healing to understand how he will heal your heart as well. Um, With a physical healing, if I break my leg or something, okay, pain forces us to face the problem. 
when you try to walk on the broken leg and it just doesn't work out so well, that's when you realize maybe there's a problem. If it didn't hurt, you'd keep walking on it, right? That's the way it is. I remember when I got an infection in my foot. I stepped on a nail and um, I didn't get my foot off that nail right away due to uh, some interesting circumstances. Anyway, when I finally got my foot off that nail, um, yeah, I know, that's a real story, huh? Um, My foot developed a raging bone infection right in my big toe area. But the key was the nail had just gone straight in right by the joint of my big toe on my right foot um, and came right back out. It bruised the top of my foot, but it didn't go all the way through. Kind of looked like there wasn't really that much going on. Um, There was this tiny little hole which healed over in about two days. And there I was limping around at school and I didn't look like there was anything wrong with me except the way I walked. So people didn't really believe there was anything wrong with me. And as an abuse victim, I learned, suck it up, pretend like you're fine. So I did. So I kept walking and I kept going to work and I kept going to class until it hurt so badly that I couldn't keep going. And then when I go to my teachers and say, I I really can't do this anymore, it's hurting too much. It's like, really? Or are you just trying to get out of stuff? No, it really hurts. So I went to the doctor, he tried to lance the wound, but he just couldn't get the infection out. He gave me some antibiotics to take, you know, just pills. I ended up going home from school. I was at boarding school, but it was right at the beginning of, I mean, the end of the school year. When I went back to my parents' house, things started getting worse. I could not walk around. My foot was really hurting me. So I was like, Dad, I've got to go to the doctor. I really need to go to the doctor. He says, no, you can't go to the doctor cost too much money. You're fine. Let me look at your foot. See, it's fine. No, it's really not fine. It's really not fine. But my parents wouldn't believe me. They didn't take me to the doctor. So finally, after several days of begging, my dad said, you finish those oral antibiotics. If you're still in pain after that, then we'll take you to the doctor. So I finally got through those and I was like, please, please, please take me to the doctor. The doctor took one look at me and said, you could lose that foot. We've got to get you in the hospital now. Why did it end up being such a big problem, such a a long, drawn-out issue? Because I didn't allow that pain to tell me, you've got to do something. And even when I realized I needed to do something, I didn't treat the wound right away. I had to spend two days in the hospital with IV antibiotics. And even then, the infection wasn't fully destroyed until about a year later when I ended up going to the hospital for appendicitis, and those antibiotics finally killed the infection in my foot. You see, (laughs) yeah, beautiful, huh? When we ignore the pain caused by the infection of sin, it gets worse. There's no use taking painkillers when you've got a brain tumor. You need to deal with the issue, right? When you start dealing with the issue, then the pain should go away. If you haven't gotten to the root of the issue, as what happened with the doctor when he tried to lance my foot, he didn't get all the way to the root of the issue, and so it kept bothering me. Many people, they just say, well, yeah, I was abused, but I just forgive and forget, and it's all in the past now. Well then, why is it that you freak out at the thought of having an intimate relationship with anybody? Maybe there's still something there that needs to be dealt with. You see what I'm talking about? We can sometimes tell by the symptoms whether there's still an issue there something that we are sinning in response to someone else's sin against us. You can't stop somebody else from taking that knife and cutting you on the arm. But when there's an infection inside there, that's a symbol for sin. Infection keeps festering. It can keep hurting you 20 years later. 
if you haven't gotten rid of the infection, if there's resentment or bitterness or fear or anger toward God or something like that, it's going to hold you back from ever being able to be healthy and normal and functioning with that part of your life. So pain in a physical process forces us to face the problem, right? And we have to treat the wound but also prevent or heal the infection. This is where when someone else sins against you, you must consciously make the choice not to sin in response. Not to resent, not to be bitter, but to trust a God of justice. God is capable of getting even with somebody who has hurt you. When I realized that, it was a tremendous relief to me. Wow, I don't have to live my whole, whole life going, you did this to me and now I can never be free, all because of you. No, I could relax and go, wow, God is a God of justice. God will take care of this. And consequently, to live joyfully in the presence of God, finding real, real satisfaction in knowing God is a just God. God will either bring my grandfather to repentance. Maybe he repented before he died. I don't know. But if, that, if that's what happened, he has to understand the magnitude of what he did to me in order to really repent for that. I don't know exactly how God will do that, but I know that God is capable of doing such things. Or if he didn't repent, then God is going to give him what he deserves and do a much better job of it than any human being ever could. You know, we don't need any prison kind of justice where somebody vindictive gets even with somebody else. All that does is lower you to the level of the person that you're trying to get even with. Eventually, somewhere along the way in my healing process, I, it dawned on me, wow, you know, I can spend my whole life imprisoned by someone else's sin, but that's just like saying, devil, I hate what you did so much that I'm going to join your side and I'm going to fight in your forces with all of my heart because of what you inspired my grandfather to do. And that just struck me as really illogical. I thought the much better way to get even with him was to join the Lord's side and to fight against him with all of my strength. And that reproach, that approach brought me so much healing and so much freedom. Remember that infections left to fester continue the process of destruction. If you're sinning in response to someone else's sin against you, either trying to be God or trying to make someone or something else into God, trying and trying over and over to get somebody else to be what they're never going to be, maybe, you're never going to find the freedom that God wants you to have because that is sin. You've got to let God be God and trust him. Don't try to make him make sense. Sometimes you just got to go, wow, God, you're going to work this out somehow. I know it. How do you think Joseph felt when he was sitting in prison? The height of injustice. Here he is. His brothers sell him as a slave. Then he works faithfully for God despite all of this horrible stuff. Then as a result, great, he gets thrown into prison because of Potiphar's wife's false accusations. He could be so bitter. He had every right to be bitter, didn't he? And yet, when the butler and the baker are in the prison... It says that Joseph came to their cell and he said, Why do you guys look so sad today? That verse just speaks to me mountains of meaning of Joseph's approach to injustice. He trusted God. And you and I can trust God to heal us from the effects of other people's abuse against us. Remember that healing is a process. It's usually not an event. It's a process by which God continually shows you new ways that his character applies to your life. New ways to trust him. New ways to believe that he really is love. And new ways to surrender your heart and your life to him. And sometimes, you know, 
this process is going to seem like it takes forever. When I was in the hospital for two days, it felt like two weeks. I hated lying there, not being able to do anything. Healing seems like it takes forever, and many times you'll be tempted to go, God, why don't you do this faster? If you really were a God of love, surely you'd get this over with quickly. But the journey is a beautiful one when you're just learning to trust God more and more deeply all the time. Emotional healing, just like physical healing, pain forces us to face the problem, and we must treat the wound and also prevent or heal our sins of response against it. Our sins of response, if they're left to fester, will continue that process of destruction. That abuser who abused you once will keep on abusing you within your mind for the rest of your life unless you let go and allow God to heal you and set you free. And healing is a process requiring repentance and forgiveness. Repentance for our own sins in response, forgiveness toward the person who has sinned against us. Sometimes our repentance just needs to be, Lord, I'm so sorry that I didn't believe who you said you were. You said you were a God of love, but because this happened to me, I doubted it. I want you to help me to believe that you are who you say you are. That repentance is often enough to jumpstart that process of healing and finding emotional freedom. The journey is the destination. Realize, the Bible says in Mark 4.28, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. You see what that's talking about? That's talking about a process of growth. It's called sanctification. And your process of healing and forgiving and giving these things to God is the process of sanctification. You don't need to become perfect before God is going to accept you. Many people who've been abused have that common misconception. I've got to get everything together or God is not going to accept me. He's going to, you know, I get to the pearly gates. He says, uh-uh, didn't you still resent that guy? Out, out. No, you're going to have to forgive a thousand times. But as you forgive, as you give things to God, you will understand more and more deeply what the gospel says and what it means and how much God has forgiven you. God's word is all about revealing the thoughts and motives of our hearts. Our thoughts and motives are so often corrupt. We have mixed reasons for doing almost everything that we do. You know, well, Lord, I really just feel like sleeping all, all afternoon, but I'm going to go out and knock on doors and reach out to my neighbors. So we go out and do that, and man, we feel so much better afterward. Lord, I'm so grateful. Man, I really made a big difference out there. Just think, nobody else at church does this. See what I'm talking about? Right away, our motives start bending into pride. The devil is always trying to get us off track. But that process of redemption and sanctification will keep happening. As morning by morning, you bring yourself to God. You say, Lord, how do you want to change me into your image today? You study his word. Don't just read it. So many people who have been abused fall into the habit of just reading the Bible. The Bible isn't meant to be read. It's meant to be studied. It's meant to be meditated upon. That means you don't just say, all right, I've fallen into this sin. I'm going to read ten chapters a day until I feel closer to God. No, don't do that. That is going to make you feel like you're saving yourself by your own works. I finally feel closer to God. I read 30 chapters today. No, God wants you to sit down and spend time with him. Draw close to him. Remember, he says, I want to know you. I want to love you and have you love me in response. God wants you to sit down and read maybe a parable or just a short story of something Jesus did and think about, wow, what would it be like to be around a Jesus like that? How he related to that person. Is there somebody in my life who I'm not relating to in the right way? As we do that, as we surrender our lives to the inspecting eye of God, He'll tap us on the shoulder morning by morning say, this area right here, Nicole, this needs to be changed. This area right here, Nicole, 
This is an area, you know, the way that you talked to your husband was unloving. The way you talked to your children was disrespectful. The attitude you had toward that woman who called you on the phone was unkind. He'll, he'll keep convicting us moment by moment of ways that were not like him. And that's the process of sanctification. He'll show you more and more ways that you need to forgive, that you need to let go. And that's a beautiful process. Don't be discouraged by the process. Realize that the closer we come to Christ, the more we see our own imperfections, the ways we're not like him. Don't be discouraged. I want to uh, remind you of something that the Bible says that you may not have ever really thought about because it was kind of a new thought to me when I realized this not long ago. Pain is not the enemy. According to the Bible, what is the enemy? Sin is the enemy. According to the Bible, sin is the enemy. If you're living in a world where there is no God, you just woke up and you realize that evolution is true, creation is false, there is no God, this planet's been here for millions of years and sometime an asteroid is going to hit it and we're all going to be smoked. Um, if that was reality, what would be the purpose of life? You'd better just enjoy it as much as you can and try to stay away from pain as much as you can, right? As Solomon said, everything under the sun would be the only things that are important. And if pain is the enemy, it's because you have no eternal perspective. God wants us to know that sin is the enemy, not pain. And if sin is the enemy, then our goal is not happiness, as it would be if everything that mattered was everything under the sun. Our goal is not happiness. Our goal is holiness. God wants to use pain, actually, as one of his most effective tools to deliver us from sin. Because when we see what sin does to us and to those around us, the kind of evil effects of decay that sin has on people, wow, that's motivational. That helps us realize how much we need God. Abuse tempts us to commit the sin of unbelief. It makes us want to um, believe that God is not who he says he is. God-ordained parents reflect his unconditional love to their children, but when mis parents misrepresent God, they warp their children's sense of worth and lovability. We talked about this earlier. This makes children perceive God as unloving in some way. That's what will happen to you if you believe the devil's lies. You'll believe that God is unloving, but he doesn't really give good gifts to his children. What does this mean? That emotional brokenness makes hearts impervious to the gospel. We are facing a massive evangelistic crisis in the world today because of this very concept. People go through abuse more and more. We're living in this fractured society where hardly any families are really powerfully united and loving and consistent in reflecting God's love to one another. So if the gospel really works, it must address that brokenness that results from other people's sins against us, right? God has promised us, as those who have suffered from other people's sins, that when my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Psalm 27.10. Now, I used to think that that was just God talking about when parents abandon their children or maybe die on them, you know. But I've realized that's not true. God wants in any way that your parents or significant caregivers have let you down in their portrayal of God to you, he wants to make that up. He wants to say, okay, they gave you a warped image of who I am, but look to my word and look to Jesus' life to see what I'm really like. That's who you're worshiping, not somebody who takes away good things with no good reason or who just ignores when you're in pain, but a God who gives good gifts consistently, who can't stop all bad things from happening, so instead he uses those bad things to accomplish better things in our lives.
Um, many of us are like sponges. You know, I've used this illustration before in other presentations that we're like a sponge that gets dunked into this sink full of warm, soapy water, and yet we come back up dry. Why is that? It's because we have this Ziploc bag around our hearts. God's love is like that water. We're thirsty. We long for him to satisfy us. Why is it that we'll pray and pray and read the Bible and yet we get up and we just feel so dry, so empty? It's because we have this plastic bag of unbelief around our hearts saying, yeah, but God is like this. God doesn't do things like this. God just doesn't make any sense to me. I know some of you have struggled with these feelings. God wants us to understand who he really is. And his way of doing that is by using the word of God to puncture through that bag of unbelief, to help us to see this is who I am, not who you felt I am, but who I really am. How do we heal? What is the process that a person can follow in finding emotional and spiritual healing? The first thing that I would recommend that you do is admit the truth to yourself first. Many people can't admit the truth to themselves, let alone to God or to other people. I remember when I first went to a counselor, the Lord miraculously sent me to this counselor. I never would have gone on my own. And the most healing thing he did for me was just believe me. I don't know how to express that in a way that you would understand, but that after years of telling myself, you're just making a big deal about nothing, all it was was a little rape, you know, like people who have been through abuse often do. It's kind of just, well, come on, get over it. That was so many years ago. You shouldn't be having problems because of that. And when I told this man my story, I couldn't stop myself from crying. It was so terribly difficult for me to get words out just to say my grandfather molested me. And he just had this look of compassion on his face. He said, you have been hurt so much. And then he helped me understand. You need to admit to yourself what you've been through. You need to write out what happened. It took me years to be able to literally make a pen, actually write out the words of what had happened to me. I couldn't admit to myself what had happened to me. I couldn't say the words to anyone else to tell the story of what had happened to me. But when I finally could do that, it was so freeing, so healing for me. It may be very difficult for you to tell your story. The more difficult it is, maybe the more damage it has done to you and the more you're still held back by that shame and that feeling. But as you write that out or talk to someone, it will help you to admit to yourself, wow, I really was sinned against. This is really not okay behavior. And as strange as that may sound to a person who hasn't been through abuse, it can make a huge difference for a person who has. Admit the truth. The Bible says God desires truth in the inward parts. He that speaketh the truth in his heart will be saved. You can talk to God about what happened, even if you feel you can't talk to someone else about it. But as you become comfortable with the reality and you can face what happened, it becomes easier not to feel you have to hide everything in shame. Drink in God's word and prayer. You may want to make a list of things that you feel about who God is, why you feel you know, held back from being able to be close to him. And as you do that, you'll be able to ex experience and embrace his love for you. You want to find good resources and healthy relationships. There are some terrific resources I can recommend to you. Um, one of them is a book called Door of Hope by Jan Frank. I've read a lot of books about emotional healing. There are so many terrific ones, but I found hers was very solidly biblical and really helped me to grow in my understanding of how God deals with sexual abuse. Um, Jan Frank, J-A-N, and then Frank, F-R-A-N-K, Door of Hope. Then there's um, 
a lot of a lot of great resources at ccef.org. Um, there's an excellent book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul David Tripp that I highly recommend. It's actually for a counselor, but it explains the process of healing and redemption. It's not specifically about sexual abuse, but about how the gospel applies to life and pain in general. Um, there's also one called The Serpents Among Us about helping prevent sexual abuse of your children. Um, many people who have been sexually abused cannot protect their children. They just Their detector doesn't go off when there's a problem. And reading through that book can be very helpful in helping you to understand, wow, this really is not okay. And identifying the patterns of a way that a person grooms someone to be sexually abused by them. Find a biblical counselor. I, I hesitate to recommend that sometimes just because there are so many counselors out there that do much more harm than good by giving you humanistic ideas, you know, scream profanities and punch a pillow to get your anger out. Well, where in the Bible does sinning um, fix sinning? Um, but there are very strong biblical principles that can help you and often just being able to talk with someone who understands and can share scripture with you and help you come outside of your own feelings to see things from a clearer perspective can be so helpful. So find spiritual counselors, godly people who can help you work through things. Not every spiritual person is going to understand sexual abuse. It may be really discouraging to you to try to go to somebody that you feel could be helpful and discover they really don't understand how to help. But be patient. Ask the Lord to guide you to where you can find healing. You need spiritual community. You need other people who can reflect to you God's love because that will help you to get away from that warped perspective of who God was, whether it's your parents or someone else who has sinned against you, helping you to see God for who he is. That's why God created the church, a community of believers to reflect God's love to one another. And... Um, you can also email me. Um, we have a new website, heartthirst.com, H-E-A-R-T-T-H-I-R-S-T. Um, and you can email ministry at heartthirst.com. I am very busy as a mom of three little kids, but I try to answer any email that somebody sends to me about any struggle that you're going through and at least be able to refer you to some good resources or find a counselor for you somewhere around in your area. The main thing, though, is that God is your counselor. God cares intimately about everything that you're going through. I have counseled with so many victims of sexual abuse or sexual assault or any kinds of abuse, and they come with this common feeling that, is God really going to stick up for me? Is he really on my side? I want to assure you, God is. He is there with you. He understands the broken and contrite heart, and he will be with you in your journey of healing. We're going to go into having our prayer time now. We just have a few minutes since we wasted so much time with computer problems. Go ahead, honey. Thank you. I've uh, appreciated the time. I know we spent a little longer here, but you found this has been valuable. And um, it, it's something that we don't often talk about, but we need to. But we, we want to end with prayer. I want to announce again that tomorrow at 11.30 we'll have an anointing. Uh, you're welcome to come to that anointing. But for right now, we want to end on, the, on a positive prayer. There's a lot of us here. So uh, this morning we came up to the front, and there's not going to be space, I think, to do that. So what I want to encourage you to do, if you would like to kneel with us, and would you mind singing? I'm not a very good singer. I have other talents. But um, if you wouldn't mind singing uh, Into My Heart um, with us, and then as we do that, then we, what I'd encourage you to do, we're going to have a common prayer, 
and then just gather with people in your row and continue the prayer session after that common prayer together. So uh, feel free to uh, to kneel wherever you are, and uh, if there's, you know, if if you've got someone next to you that you know and it's appropriate, you feel free to put your arm around them. But if it's not, then don't. <laughs> Father God, we sense our need for you. And so we, before we begin our prayer time, we just ask that you come into our hearts and you bring the healing that you've promised. Thank you for the healing that you've brought into Nicole's life. And I'm just thrilled at, at how you've brought such overwhelming healing uh, that where we were afraid when we got married, you you stepped in and, and you created a new fresh page that has been wonderful to build on. Thank you, Lord, for that healing. And now we pray that you, step in, you, you come into our hearts and that you step into our lives and help us to experience that healing again. Lord, we thank you so much that you give good gifts to your children, that you give beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I know that that's a promise that many people here or those listening on Audioverse or somewhere else will, will really need to cling to as they go through this journey of healing. I just claim it for them, Lord. I will be praying for them, and I know that you are always close, that your arm is not short, that you are able to save from anything that we struggle with. We pray that you will fulfill your mighty promises that you will bring us through these trials whatever it is that we face that we may find in you our everlasting best friend and that we may understand the truth of the everlasting principle God is love we thank you Lord and we praise you for your gift of healing we ask all of this in Jesus name this message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.